0: Shelley Schlender. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How On Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 23rd, 2019.
1: Coming up, the Amazon is burning. We'll talk with CU expert on the burning of the tropics, Jennifer Balch. We begin with a look at the news headlines, looking at climate strikes and summits over the past week.
0: Hundreds of thousands of youth activists took to the streets around the globe, including here, of course, on the Front Range last Friday, to demand that countries act more aggressively and swiftly to fight climate change. Led by Greta Thunberg, a teenager from Sweden... The youth activists tried to tuck some sense into the so-called adults, United United Nations leaders who gathered in New York on Saturday for the first Youth Climate Summit. Did the adults listen? Well, it could have been hard not to hear Greta's voice, especially at the United Nations Climate Action Summit held yesterday. At those talks, she gave an impassioned address to the many presidents, prime ministers, and corporate executives in the room. She ripped into them, in fact, her voice quivering. She said, quote, If you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. But what Greta and many others heard in the General Assembly Hall were some vague and incremental promises. Very few real action plans. For instance, China, which is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, stopped short of pledging faster and bolder targets. President Trump, who showed up at the last minute with Vice President Mike Pence, said nothing. The United States in 2017 vowed to pull out of the Paris Agreement. That's the pact among nations to collectively battle climate change. The United States is not on track, in fact, to meet its pledges under the Paris Accord. The Trump administration has rolled back many environmental regulations since then. At least there there were a few concrete pledges made yesterday. For example, Germany's Chancellor, Angela Merkel, promoted a $60 billion 10-year plan to speed up the country's shift to clean power. Yesterday's summit in New York came as national leaders and activists are gearing up for the next major U.N. climate change conference, that's known as COP25. It'll take place in Santiago, Chile, from December 2nd to 13th. Many youth activists will attend the meeting as well, and no doubt they'll be demanding more aggressive action and more teeth behind pledges from the so-called adults in the room.
1: You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. We're learning with each passing day how everything involving climate and nature connects with everything else on the planet. The Amazon is an example. The South American rainforest is the world's largest. It's almost as big as the United States. But that doesn't make it invincible. If the deforestation and burning of the Amazon continue at the present pace, there is a real risk— of the great tropical trees soon dying out, along with the great species diversity. One of the scientists who has studied this the most extensively is here in Colorado, at CU Boulder. Her work has been featured nationally, including in the New York Times. Jennifer Balch, let's have you introduce yourself to our
2: listeners. My name is Jennifer Balch, and I'm the director of Earth Lab and also the North Central Climate Adaptation Science Center at CU Boulder. I have studied fire and how changing fire is happening all over the world from the Amazon to the western U.S. Fire is used as a critical tool in the frontier, and we did that 200 years ago here in the U.S. We used fire to deforest, essentially to remove that unwanted tree matter in order to plant or to put in cattle. And that's exactly what's happening right now on the Amazon. They're at a critical moment wanting to preserve livelihoods for people and wanting to preserve the biodiversity and the amazing natural heritage in the Amazon rainforest. Is it just happening in the Amazon? No, this is something that's happening around the world in tropical forests, in Africa, in the Congo, and also Indonesia, Malaysia, born in tropical rainforests. And so we're seeing this massive push for land use in the tropical bands around the world.
1: Well, Jennifer Balch, here in the United States, we have had times where we burned away land, and used it for crops, for cities, for cattle. And then we've had times where we stopped doing that and the forest grew back.
2: We went through this process 200 years ago, and I'd say that we're kind of catching up with wanting to preserve and protect parks and and lands that we love. I think that Brazil has an opportunity right now to do better than we did and to protect large expanses of the Amazon rainforest for the value that is in that forest itself, both in terms of the carbon that it holds and also in terms of the number of species that it holds. If I go for a walk here in Boulder and hike up the Flatirons, I'll probably see a handful of tree species. If I did that same hike in the Amazon, I would see hundreds if not thousand species of trees. It's just so dense in terms of the life that it holds. I think it's a moral and ethical mistake to get rid of all those species and expect that we will hold on to some of them later on. And it's not to say that there's not sustainable ways to both use the landscape and preserve it at the same time. Good land stewards, farmers, ranchers who care about their lands can have both. Um, You know, we can have both. It's just it takes a lot of intention and a lot of creativity in order to sustainably develop. Um, And we also have to be willing to pay more for that, to actually pay the forests for the services that they provide us in terms of our water quality, in terms of our air quality, in terms of the products that we use and generate from those systems.
1: Okay, Jennifer Balch, I hear you saying that even in the United States, we could do more to restore the natural habitat, the natural forests, because there's so much that they can do for us. And you have special concerns about the tropical areas because just as there's more diversity there, there's more to lose if we mess it
2: up. That's right. And we don't even know all the species that are in the Amazon. I mean, that's the other crazy thing is that they have so many species from butterflies and beetles to mammals and trees that we don't know all that's there. And what a tragedy it would be if we lost it before we even knew what existed. And your research, Jennifer Balch, indicates
1: that we could lose it very quickly. Your research is saying that with just a certain amount of people going in and burning hectare by hectare, which is what? About two or three acres of land, not very much. This patchwork quilt of places burned could die off the entire forest within 10 years.
2: So the work that I've done in the southern part of the Amazon, it's one of the largest and longest-running experimental burns in the tropics. And what we did was we burned a 50-hectare plot every year. We burned a second 50-hectare plot. And a 50-hectare plot would be about 150 acres, roughly. That's right. So these are large areas. I mean, it would essentially take me the time that it takes me to walk across main campus here at CU Boulder. So we burned each of those plots, different fire frequencies, and then we held on to one as a control plot and we didn't burn it. And we compared what happened to the forest that we burned with the forest that didn't burn. And essentially within 10 years time, we were able to convert that forest into an exotic grassland where non-native species that are essentially hitchhikers with cattle pasture kind of moved in with frequent fire. And we had very, very high tree mortality, around 60% of the trees died within the first couple of burns.
1: That's very different from here in Colorado where our trees are adapted to burning and in fact need it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The reason why is because the trees in the Amazon, they historically have not experienced fire that frequently. Maybe once every five or six centuries you see a mega drought and a mega burn in tropical forests. But that that's not enough for these trees to exhibit some sort of adaptation, like thick bark, for example, like ponderosa pine trees that have thick bark. We also have what are called serotonous cones here in the West which are pine cones that essentially have sap in between them that only melts during very, very high temperatures. And so they release their seeds after fire. We don't see any of those types of adaptations in the Amazon rainforest. The reason so many trees died is because they don't have those adaptations and they're really vulnerable even to quote-unquote cooler fires. The trees die easily.
1: What about the rainfall? In your papers, you've indicated that... The trees themselves have a way of gathering the moisture in the air back into turning it into rain. And once you have a patchwork quilt where there aren't as many trees, the rainfall isn't as good. And the trees around the edges of the place that got burned, they start to die too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the amazing things about trees is that they transpire a lot of water, meaning they exhale water as they're photosynthesizing 30% of the rainfall that falls over the Amazon is actually generated by the trees themselves.
1: 30%. The trees themselves create 30% more rain. I'm thinking about here in Colorado, where if we had 30% more rain we would almost be Ohio.
2: Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? (laughs) The pine trees here and the conifer trees here, they don't transpire as much water, but they certainly do transpire water. Boulder has invested a lot in building our urban tree canopy because it keeps it cooler and moister, that water that those trees are transpiring.
1: So even here in dry Colorado, we benefit some from having trees that create a little bit more moisture in the air but they're in the tropics, 30%. If you don't have those trees helping make the water, how much does that change the whole area?
2: Oh, it changes it a huge amount, and it exacerbates drought conditions. There's a nasty cycle that can start by cutting down Amazon trees. Once you cut them down or once they're exposed to fire and they die off, all of a sudden you've got an understory that's exposed to greater sunlight, which dries out fuels on the ground. And it also makes it hotter and more conducive to fire. And those trees are then also not producing the rainfall that they would have. And so you have less rainfall, which makes it even more dry, making the forest more prone to fire.
1: More prone to fire. And how about the mighty Amazon and those other mighty rivers? What happens to them?
2: there's documentation that the amount of water that would come out of those rivers is less than it would be without those trees. That's another literal and figurative downstream consequence of cutting down or burning or losing Amazon rainforest trees. It could be a substantial amount of water flow that is no longer there. The loss of those trees impacts stream temperatures too, which impacts the fish in those streams. They don't like to swim in hot water or water that's full of nutrients, because the other thing that trees do is they keep the soils intact, and you get quite a bit of runoff by losing those trees as well. And that runoff, especially in agricultural areas, can carry with it a lot of nutrients, which completely changes stream dynamics. Oh,
1: so instead of having these clear, cool rivers and creeks and streams in the amazon you would have streams that are too warm and are filled with pond scum maybe
2: even toxic kinds of algae kinds of agrochemicals and nutrients from fertilizers that don't stay in the soils they move downstream so those are some of the key consequences to losing amazon trees We're
1: talking with Jennifer Balch. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. We're talking about how with current practices in the Amazon and other tropical rainforests, we could lose many of them within the next 10 years because of a domino effect of one plot burning means a lot of die off in that plot and also around it. We could lose a lot of our tropical rainforest around the world.
2: Yeah. And let me just clarify one point. The work that we did where we identified an Amazon tipping point and loss of that forest within 10 years was really at the edge of those forest systems. Our work doesn't implicate the entire Amazon basin disappearing in 10 years, but it does implicate all of the edges that are created by land use change. So as this patchwork quilt of cattle ranching and slash and burn agriculture and mechanized agriculture moves in, you've got lots of edges exposed to ignitions from land use. So the spark that starts those fires, they're drier because they're hotter understories and they've got less moisture. And you also have invasive grasses that are hitchhiking with cattle pasture. And so those three things at forest edges can precipitate a rapid transformation. And we documented that within 10 years. The other critical point about this is that this is not a projection of how climate is going to change the Amazon in the next 50 to 100 years this is something that is actually happening right now and we've already lost 20 percent of the amazon to clearing for agriculture and for cattle pasture the amazon and brazil and all the nations that hold parts of the amazon are at a critical moment to garner the international interest to actually pay for the carbon that that forest holds pay for the carbon that forest holds for the biodiversity, for the possibility
1: of new pharmaceuticals, for the possibility of new discoveries. How about the pink river dolphins? What would happen to them if we don't do this?
2: Boy, that's a good question. They're vulnerable, just as many of the larger critters are. It's an amazing place. And uh, you know I hope all of your listeners get a chance to see it in one shape or form. This Immense, rich, lush forest just teeming with life. It's really a remarkable place, and it's so diverse also. It's not just one Amazon forest. It's many different types of Amazon forests stitched together, and it's also incredibly diverse in terms of culture and the people that live there.
1: Now, Jennifer Balch, you're talking like somebody who understood what was happening in the Wild West, might have talked about the Native Americans Mm -hmm. and the stewardship of the land here. And what we did, how can we have had the kind of past where we did that, look at Brazil and say, don't do what we did?
2: It's critically important to not point any fingers because we here in the U.S. have made our own incredible mistakes. But, you know, when you say mistakes, that's from the perspective of somebody who values the forests.
1: And there's the counter-argument that these mistakes have also led to our modern United States and the technologies that we have and the people who aren't starving you could say that this kind of deforestation in England led to those wonderful bucolic hills and pastures where you don't have a lot of wild species and diversity which they used to have but you do have this beautiful place that gets written about in books like The Hobbit because everybody loves it so much you can call it a mistake or you could call it a change and say that it leads to a life that we humans seem to prefer what would you say to that
2: how do we do it better now given the lessons that hopefully we have learned maybe we should have thought about protected areas in the lands that we were living on before we only had limited options. And you see that even in housing prices, that the most expensive houses are the ones that are adjacent to public lands. We value that. We value those forests and those grasslands and those shrublands. Yet we're caught a little bit behind in the sense of, boy, wouldn't it be nice to have more parks, state parks, wildlands? Boy, wouldn't it be nice to not have to worry about the populations of elk that we like to hunt? Or that we like to see, or that people
1: who like to go hiking in Boulder because Boulder had the foresight to preserve a lot of the space for hiking. Boulder has more people hiking here than are in Rocky Mountain National Park because people like it that much.
2: Especially here in Boulder, we should appreciate Our open lands, our public lands, are really valuable to us as a community. And that's what I mean when I said our own mistakes. Like, wouldn't it be awesome if there were many communities like Boulder that held on to their open space and their public lands in the same way that we do? Imagine if there were entire networks that were connected that provided corridors for jaguars and for wolves. Amazing species that today are
1: on the brink. There are scientists who would say that there's more green today than there was 100 years ago. The East Coast is one example of that. People have farmed less. Some of the trees have been coming back. You can say that the greenness of the
2: world has actually gotten better. Well, it depends on where. It depends on where we're talking about. But yeah, we have seen an increase in forested land in the eastern US as we've transitioned away from the intensive agriculture and turned more to service industries in the major cities out east. I have an image of an 1880 census map of the US and where In the U.S., our lands were burning, and it's actually focused and concentrated in the eastern U.S. And so in Pennsylvania, for example, it was a barren land. I think of Pennsylvania as all trees now. It is. It's all even age trees. We deforested Pennsylvania for the ironworks industry. Today, it's grown back. They're all even age
1: stands. So the East Coast has a canopy, but it's not a diverse canopy right now. It may be a bigger canopy than it had in the 1800s, but it doesn't have... That thing that we know about that has to do with health, which is always not just one species. You need a lot of different ages and sizes and kinds for it to be a diverse and healthy
2: forest. Well, and just think about the giant sequoias, these amazing trees that essentially were obliterated, and we have only small fractions of those forest stands that they used to be. And they're just immense, enchanting forests. I would argue that we have lost something in some places, and it depends on who you are and what you value. But I do think that there are better ways to move forward. We can have our forests, (laughs) and we can have our livelihoods, but we have to be very creative and intentional and be willing to pay a little bit more for the things that we depend on.
1: We're talking about how you pay for this and how you persuade another place far away to do something that we couldn't do in the United States. But you've also indicated that even though we don't have as healthy a forest in the United States, at least we have them. It doesn't sound like you're as convinced that would happen in the Amazon, that that forest is so interconnected and there's so many ways that it needs the big trees and the thickness and the lack of patchwork quilt change of the forest. It needs everything together for it to be what it is. If enough people take that away from the edges and going into the inside by burning it, it may just collapse at some point. Am I exaggerating that or could that really happen?
2: No, it could happen. And as a scientific community, we've been alluding to some of the reasons why that could happen. Land use, land cover change, a changing climate, and fire all together can cause major threats to the Amazon. You know, it took us two hundred years in the US to expand our frontier, but in Brazil it's happening much, much faster on the order of decades. And so we have to be making these critical decisions right now. Like we are we're not gonna have time to adapt and change and think about, oh wait a second, those species in the Amazon are important. We have to be thinking about that right now. We couldn't say in fifteen years, whoops, we
1: really like those pink dolphins in the rivers. Darn it, they're gone. How do we get them back?
2: Yeah, exactly. And so I think, um, and what I'm urging for is a really, a, you know, a collective group think across international boundaries and across scientific boundaries to think about you know, the hard questions of how we can do this together. I'm not asking for Brazil to do it all on their own. And so some of the solutions to this are sustainable development, there are carbon markets that are effective, that actually put a realistic price on carbon. And there's also really important human health consequences too to all this change that we haven't really talked about. But the smoke that's coming off of these Amazon fires, it travels south through Sao Paulo, crosses the ocean and reaches South Africa. So these are really really amazing kind of international teleconnections that are linked by smoke pollution here in the U.S. We've also suffered that in previous summers where we've experienced the smoke from the Pacific Northwest fires. Um, And so we know what that feels like. And and people who are asthmatic or who have other health conditions are really vulnerable to that. Um, So we also need to think about how we manage for change and who we're exposing to that change.
1: Not just the people in the Amazon, not just the extinction of the people who live there, the native indigenous population and the native animals. Um, I keep trying to picture the Amazon as a savanna because that's where it would be heading if we keep this up as a savanna with probably more trees than West
2: Texas, but something like that. Where we were working in Mato Grosso State, which is two times the size of Texas, it's the southern part of the Amazon, and it's right next to the Brazilian savanna. And so you do have native savanna species that are smack up against the rainforest species. And by the end of our experiment, we did see savanna species walking through our forest plots. There's a bird called the Emma, which is kind of like an ostrich. It's definitely a savanna bird and all of a sudden it showed up by the end of our experiment we saw butterfly species that are only known in the savannah we were seeing that transition happening literally right before our eyes
1: this is not just we're playing with an idea here this is a real possibility that we wouldn't have an amazon we'd have something else there maybe some people would say economically we needed a savanna. That's really better for us at this point in time, and maybe in 200 years, maybe we won't have the pink dolphins or the rare butterflies, but maybe some trees will grow back if we change our minds. Uh, You don't think that we
2: can go back like that? I just hope we can do better than that. I just think we're going to lose a lot, and we're going to lose species and, and their value that we don't even know yet.
1: How do we do this, though? This is a place where you can't just leave it alone. People are actively trying to use it. People are actively invading it. People are actively breaking the law to do things in the Amazon. It's expensive to manage all of that.
2: There are signs of hope. For example, there's a sustainable soy market. If you're a legal landowner in Brazil, you would get a higher price for your soybeans. Would this be somebody growing soybeans in the Amazon? That's right. Yeah. So soy production in Brazil is really big, and particularly in the southern part of the Amazon. And a lot of that soy is either shipped to Europe or China, mostly for poultry or cattle feed.
1: But how is that
2: a compatible part with it being a rainforest? You have to have a cropland that you cleared to have soy. That's right. But Brazil is really interesting in that it has pretty progressive environmental legislation. It's the enforcement and the incentive structure. And on the back end of, oh, am I going to get punished for this? That's the problem. And so if you're a landowner in the Brazilian Amazon, you need to maintain 80% of of your land as forest. And so if you've modified and used 20% of your land to grow soybeans, and you've left that 80% intact, you can actually get a higher price for your soy than you can if you've deforested the whole piece of land.
1: Jennifer Balch, has your research shown that keeping 80% of an area rainforest and 20% in crops, will that reduce the amount of die-off of the trees? Is that doable, actually?
2: It makes a huge difference. I mean, this is one example of the potential to do it better, where Brazil has the forest codes in place to make that difference, it's on the back end in terms of the incentive structures, so the carrots and the sticks. But you think
1: it might work if the Amazon was kind of checkerboarded with 20%
2: of a crop and 80% of trees. Could it stay healthy? So we've deforested 20% of the Amazon. There's 80% left. I don't think it's realistic to say, okay, we're going to create a giant park with that 80%. We have to accommodate land use. It just has to be done in a sustainable way. And this is one mechanism to do that. And there's other mechanisms, such as forest crops themselves that are valuable, such as rubber from rubber trees, or there's lots of different, medicinal properties of different palm trees and other woods that are highly valuable that could be sustainably logged. So there's lots of value in that forest system that could also be extracted in order to maintain it. We need to act now, though, to figure
1: out how not to kill the golden goose. You better not lay an egg here because we don't want to kill the golden goose.
2: I don't know these analogies
1: don't quite fit, but I think you know what I mean. I do, but
2: I'm optimistic, hopefully with some shifts in political structure and incentives Brazil could do a lot better and you know hopefully they could take on the mantra of actually we could do better than the U.S. or other countries that have already deforested and lost some of their natural heritage. So we'll see. Jennifer Balch
1: thank you for joining us here on Hell on Earth. I'm Shelley Schlender. Our guest has been Jennifer Balch. We've been talking about the burning of the Amazon. that's all for this edition of how on earth our executive producer is beth bennett
0: this week's show is produced and engineered by shelly schlender
1: our theme music was written and produced by josh cutler edition music from kurangabun
0: visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes extended interviews and you can subscribe to our podcast through itunes and follow us on facebook and twitter
1: Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line, 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And
0: I'm Susan Moran.